0: Why did Jesus die? Why did Jesus die? It's kind of a weird question when you think about it, because we don't usually ask that question when people die unless it's like a tragedy, unless it's somebody who dies in our minds too soon, right? They have a lot more life ahead of them, they have a lot more to accomplish. Uh, They're living out a purpose, and that purpose seems to have a different horizon than that moment when they tragically die. And so that's the question we often ask with Jesus, though, right? Why did he die? Why did he die? Unless it was a tragedy. See, if you were to understand Jesus at all, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I'm so glad you're here. Or if you're here and you've been a Christian for 80 years of your life, I'm really glad you're here as well. But if we are to understand anything about Jesus at all, we have to give our attention to the last 24 hours of his life, the last 24 hours of his life. And as we travel through those last 24 hours, we see Jesus in our passage tonight, really for the first time ever, answer that question for us. He, he goes to great lengths to explain and interpret his death. He wants to make sure that we understand why he died, why he died. He wants us to see in Luke 22 uh, this evening, this afternoon, whenever it is, right? He wants us to see fundamentally, number one, in the first 13 verses of this chapter, that his death was not a tragic accident, even though to the normal eye, he had so much potential, right? He was at his peak. He had so much more uh, in front of him, so to speak, but it was not a tragic accident. Luke also then wants us to see what his death achieved. And this is where Jesus really wants to press in the answer to that question. He wants you to know this. And then I want us to examine why we need to remember I want us to see how Jesus' interpretation of His own death calls us to remember, and it's really giving us these different paradigms uh, for how we're to see uh, this world. And so let's look first at how Jesus' death was not a tragic accident. We see this in verses 1 through 13 of Luke chapter 22. I'm going to read this if you'd follow along. It says, Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover, And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them and they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, Go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, Where will you have us prepare it? He said to them, Behold, when you have entered a city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters, and tell the master of the house, The teacher says to you, Where is the guest room? where I may eat the Passover with my disciples. And he will show you a large upper room furnished, prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. So in verses 1 through 6, if you just look there, we find that there are a lot of people active at this point in the story, in these final 24 hours of Jesus' life. And a lot of them want to see the end of Jesus. So, if you ask the question, who killed Jesus, according to verses 1 through 6, uh, you would get a myriad of answers. You would say, well, the leaders of Israel... Right? They're seeking to put Jesus to death, but they can't figure out how they're going to do it because he's so popular. And if they do that and the crowd sees it, they're going to turn on them, and so that's not going to be good. So they cannot figure out how they're going to accomplish that. They need an insider, right, to help them out in some way. So enter Judas, right? Stage left, their savior, basically. Judas is here. Well, why is Judas here? Well, there's a lot more going on than meets the eye. Because we find out in verse 3 that Satan enters into Judas called Iscariot. What a chilling line, right? I mean, one of Jesus' inner circles, like person, right, at a minimum is experiencing some form of satanic direction and influence. This is the first time that we've seen Satan appear in Luke's gospel since Luke chapter four. Do you remember that, where Jesus is baptized and then he gets sent out into the wilderness to be tempted? by Satan, right? He's going without food and water for 40 days, and he remains faithful to his father through all those temptations, right? He is the true and better Israel who's faithful to his father in the wilderness, right? And then what does it say? It says, and when the devil had ended every temptation, he departed from him until an opportune time. And so, this is apparently the time that's opportune in Satan's eyes, and in verse 4, after he does this, Judas gets this cabinet-like attention. He, he's been the solution to these people's problems. He's really powerful people. And so they give him money as payment. We learn in a different gospel account, the gospel of Matthew, that this was 30 pieces of silver. And then we see this scene end by telling us that Judas was trying to figure out the perfect time to unravel this betrayal. It needs to be sometime when the crowds are not around. Right, so notice when all of this is happening. This is kind of the, the point of Luke. He wants you to know when this is happening. What does it say in verse 1? It says, the feast of unleavened bread drew near. And then it zeroes in on verse 7, then came the day of unleavened bread. And then verse 14, when the hour came. So we're kind of zooming in here on this significant moment. If you're unfamiliar um, with these festival laws in Judaism, the unleavened bread feast and the Passover feast, became nearly synonymous over time, uh, but they relate to each other, and they are, they are technically different. The Passover was the day that the lamb was sacrificed, and that's what you see going on in verses 7 through 13. They're supposed to prepare this Passover feast. They're going to eat a lamb, right? But then the Feast of Unleavened Bread technically came after that feast, after that, that night. So, I want you to notice that, but I also want you to notice the contrast, okay? So, you have people here who are planning to betray and kill Jesus, but just look at the poise of Jesus. There's like an eerie calm to Him, isn't there? When you just see Him directing people, like He is completely in control of this whole thing. He knows what's happening. He sends Peter and John to go and prepare this Passover. They're Galilean boys. They're never in the big city. They don't know where to go. And so Jesus is just like, just look for the guy carrying a jar of water. Apparently, this is one of Jesus' disciples or something. And they lead them to a place where it's all ready. And they can prepare to have this Passover. So Jesus knows exactly what's going on, even though no one else seems to know. And it happens just as He says it's going to happen. But Luke, again, really wants you to know it's Passover. I mean, just look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Look at verse 8. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us. Look at verse 11, right? And tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? Look at verse 13. And they prepared the Passover. So Luke wants you to know it's Passover. Right? This is the Passover, you guys. Right? If it wasn't clear, this is Passover. All right? What's, what is that? Well, it's important for us to kind of understand that a little bit. Do you remember the book of Exodus? If you ever read the Bible before, Exodus is the second book in the Bible. And there's a significant event that happens there where God's people grow in significant number. They start out small, they grow in great number, the Hebrews do. And during the time of their growth, Egypt, and specifically Pharaoh, oppresses them as slaves. And they cry out to God for God to deliver them from their slavery, and God hears their cries, and he sends for his people a deliverer named Moses, and Pharaoh will not listen to Moses. He will not let his people go, God's people go, and so he sends plague after plague after plague after plague, and then finally, through the hardness of Pharaoh's heart, God sends a final plague. He's going to send the angel of death, the angel of justice to come and to take the life of every firstborn in every home, which is what Pharaoh did to God's people when you read the beginning of Exodus. But God says, Moses, I have a plan because not even my people will be excluded from this plague, but I have a plan. I have a a way that people can survive this night. It's going to be called Passover. I want everybody to go and to take a lamb, to kill it, to prepare it, to eat it, to take the blood of that lamb and to wipe it on the doorposts of that house. And when that angel of justice comes, if there is blood of the lamb over the doorpost of that house, that angel will pass over and the firstborn will be spared. That's the plan. Eat a lamb, take the blood, wipe it on the doorposts. If you do that, the firstborn of that family will not die. So what saves you on that night is not being Jewish. It's not your religion. It's the blood of the Lamb. If you, if you take shelter underneath the blood of the Lamb on that night, you will be spared. So do you see what God is doing in the Exodus story? What will save you? The blood of a Lamb. So, it's the annual observance of Passover, the night you eat and you prepare this. The lamb needed to be prepared to remember the moment in history where that happened and God's people were set free through the sea. And on this day, the lamb in the room where Jesus and his disciples would celebrate this Passover that they've celebrated for centuries would need to be prepared. So here is Jesus. Do you see this? He is preparing to die. He is preparing to die in Jerusalem and all of Jerusalem is preparing their lambs and then you have all these other people satan himself preparing and planning to kill right the plans seem secret there's so much secrecy here but jesus knows all the secrets right judas is planning He's trying to figure out, when can I, when's the opportunity to betray him, right? He doesn't even know where the Passover is going to take place, and that's important in the mind of Jesus because Jesus knows he can't know the plan because if Judas knows the plan, then I could be betrayed. This is the logic here. Jesus knows I need to eat this meal before I die. It's as if Jesus has arranged it all himself. Jesus is the one in control. It's all going according to plan. His plan will come to pass. I need to eat the meal. Why? So that I can let you know why I'm going to die. He's interpreting his death for us. That's the second scene, right? We get to see why Jesus died. What did his death achieve in verse 14? Let's keep looking here. When the hour came. He reclined at table and the apostles with him, and he said to them, "'I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God.' And he took a cup, and we had given thanks. He said, "'Take this and divide it among yourselves.'" For I tell you that from now on I will not eat drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup, after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. Now again, Exodus, we know that the Passover meal was eaten on the night before the Israelites were liberated from their slavery in Egypt. They ate this on the night before they were even liberated. So the night before they were to be finally liberated, they were told, eat a meal. And God told them, I want you to eat this meal repeatedly every year as a perpetual memorial. I never want you to forget this night. Right? I never want you to forget how I saved you with my power and grace. And so, this feast of Passover, it was observed for centuries. They ate it once a year with their families. But here, Jesus has drawn away his disciples from their families around a table. This is why the next scene that we see here in verse 17. Jesus takes a cup and he gives thanks and he begins to speak. This is exactly, again, what's happened for 1,500 years. This is how this Passover meal worked. The head of the family, they would get up, they would take a cup, the first cup of wine from that Passover meal, there was so much liturgy to it, and he would give thanks. He would ask a question. So this is what's happening in verse 17. He takes a cup, for 1,500 years they've been doing this, The first cup of wine, he gives thanks, and then this question would be asked. The question would come from the youngest child in the room, traditionally. And the child would say, why is tonight different from all the other nights? Then the head of the family would explain the meaning of Passover, and they would take the family through passages in Deuteronomy, like Deuteronomy 26, and retell the story of how their ancestors were slaves, but that God looked upon their affliction and their suffering and delivered them. Then he would refer to like Deuteronomy chapter 16 and say, do you see this bread? This bread is the bread of our affliction. Our ancestors' affliction as they were enslaved and as they wandered in the wilderness. He would explain the meaning of their ancestors' suffering and their freedom. All right, so, so Jesus is again doing this not with his family, but with the 12, right? And he picks up the cup and he opens his mouth and everything should just be completely status quo. You could almost fall asleep. You've doing this for so many years. Pretty standard up to this point. He would do what has been done for centuries, but as soon as he began to speak, what he said must have just knocked the wind out of the disciples. Don't miss it. He says things that have never been said. He says the meal that they are observing is not referring to the past. It's referring to the future. Notice he says, I'm not going to eat and drink this again until it's all fulfilled in the kingdom of God. So he's talking about like the future future, like heaven future. So he's first talking about that, but then he's also talking about something else. He's talking about something that's coming sooner than that, like the next day. He says, this is the bread of my affliction. This is my body. This bread is going to be broken. I'm giving it to you. Do you see how striking this is? He's saying years ago, every year, our ancestors ate a meal before God redeemed them. From physical slavery. But tonight, we are eating a meal before God will redeem us from our sin, right? From from death itself, the curse of death, from evil, right? From Satan himself, right? All the former lambs that were sacrificed, all the other deliverances, they're just foreshadows of the ultimate deliverance offered in me. I'm the true and better Moses. Right? My cross is the ultimate exodus. This is the night that's different from all the other nights. Right? Do you see? Jesus is saying his death is the climax of what history has been moving towards. His cross is the center of human history. Just think about it. Luke, Matthew, Mark, they all leave out the presence of the lamb at the meal. But isn't this like the most important part in a way? Because you saw in verse 8, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it, right? This is the night, verse 7, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. But here we are at a Passover meal, like every year, and the main course is completely left out of the conversation, None of these gospel writers record the consumption of the main course, and the point is clear, right? There's wine. There's unleavened bread. But there's no lamb on the table because the lamb of God is at the table. I mean, Jesus has known this has been the plan from before the creation of the world. I mean, people were making sacrifices since day one when Adam and Eve sinned what happened? They were they knew of their nakedness and they felt shame because of that sin and so what did God do? after they had tried to you know put together these fig leaves for clothing, God sacrifices an animal and clothes them with animal skins. I don 't know if you knew this, but you can't be clothed with animal skins without the animal dying that's not how it works. So the first sacrifice in the Bible was from God sacrificing an animal and you have Cain and Abel, you have Noah, you have Abraham, you have all the forefathers, right? You have Moses, you have all the priests, you have David, you have all these people making sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. And then Jesus shows up on the scene in John's gospel. He heads out to the Jordan River, and what is said of John? He looks at Jesus in the eyes and he says, behold, the Lamb of God who comes to take away the sin of the world, right? This is the plan. And this is exactly why when Jesus hangs on the cross, before he breathes his last, he utters, it is finished. It's finished. And there now no longer remains a sacrifice needed for sin. This is why there are no more sacrifices, because his was sufficient. There is nothing that you can do to make yourself more lovable to God. There is nothing that you can do to Make yourself more forgiven before God. There is nothing you can do to make God accept you more. right? Jesus is saying, I want you to always remember that my life was not taken. It was given. I am the Lamb of God. This was the plan. I love the quote from Octavius Winslow, who summed it up really well, who said, who delivered up Jesus to die? Not Judas for money, not Pilate for fear, not the Jews for envy, but the Father for love. This is the plan. Well, what does death achieve? Well, he interprets this for us in these elements. He says the cup is what? It represents the new covenant in my blood. That word covenant is a relational word, isn't it? It's a relational word. It's a binding, intimate relationship. The nearest association we have for it is marriage. We still use that word even in marriage. So, so this is what he's, he's getting at here. This is a new covenant. It's a marriage-like relationship. Well, what makes the new covenant new? Well, he, we, we need to look at Jeremiah 31, 31 to see that. It's an easy verse, just passage to memorize. 31, 31, Jeremiah 31, 31. I recommend you dig into this. But God promised long ago, should be on the screen for you. Said, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. No longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. So, what did Jesus' death achieve? This. What's he saying? He's saying, The new covenant is new because I am going to make you a new person, a completely new person through the blood of Jesus. Right? The words he uses, I'm going to write the law on your hearts. I'm going to make you into such a new person that God's the Spirit himself, will come and live inside of you and change you into a person that will want to follow me, who will want to listen to me, that will, that will you walk in the paths that I have created for your good and my glory. What's the second thing? He's going to bring you into this friendship with God. You and I were alienated from God, but there will be he says what? They will be my people and I will be their God. Right? From the least to the greatest. So no matter how great of a person you think you are to how least of a person you think you are, all of us have the same access to the same relationship with God through Christ. And then lastly, what does he say he makes the new covenant new? What does he achieve? He will forgive and forget your sin. He won't even remember your sin. Do you see that? I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sins no more. Meaning, I will not bring it to bear on my relationship with you. Even though I forgave you that, I'm never going to dig it back up and say, remember when you did this? I'm not that kind of God. Why? Because Jesus paid for it. So Jesus' death was not a tragic accident. Number two, it it achieved full and final forgiveness in a covenant relationship. So what happens then? When we bring the cross to bear at the center of our lives, what happens there? This is why we need to remember, as we bring the cross to the center of our lives, we see that this is going to give us a few different paradigms for how we live. Let's look again, verse 20. And likewise the cup, after they'd eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, the hand of him who betrays me Is with me on the table, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another, which of them it could be who is going to do this. I want to point out to you just a few paradigms that this will shift for us. Number one, my sins are greater than I thought. My sins are greater than I thought. Guys, no one in this world will tell you how big your sins are. That's not the way of the world, right? But Jesus tells you how great your sin is because he wants to take it away. One of my favorite songs is the Fernando Ortega song, Sing to Jesus. All the words are great. The song itself is beautiful. Alison Krauss sings on it. It's wonderful. But I love the first line. He sings, come and see, look on this mystery, the Lord of the universe nailed to a tree. When you think about how great Jesus is, that will begin to magnify in your minds how great of a problem we have. Right? Don't just think like a secularist would, like, you know what, if, even if there is a God if, a God, if I die, him and I will just kind of figure it out together, how it's all going to work. No, how great of a problem do we have if the only solution to that problem is that God himself would take on human flesh and come and be crucified and shed his blood for you? And that would be the only remedy to our problem. So, guys, when I come to Jesus, I don't meet him at a coffee shop. I don't, I don't meet him at his house for brunch. I meet him at the cross. And when I meet him at the cross, I begin to see with clearer vision how great my sin actually is that would demand such a price. But the second paradigm this is showing us is that simultaneously, God's love is greater than I could even dream. At the same time, God loved the world, right? So he gave. He gave his son. So if you believe in him, you would not perish, but have everlasting life. Right? The same place that magnifies my sin, magnifies God's love. R.J.K. Law. Those are quite some initials. This is why he says, the greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. When you meet him at the cross, we can't can't doubt this, right? I mean, and we get this, right? When someone goes to great lengths to help us, or they sacrifice their time and their resources or everything to help us in some great area of need, we experience love. I mean, I've heard so many testimonies of people within our church, testimony after testimony, that brings people to tears where they talk about the kind of tangible love they've experienced from other people, the sacrifices others have made in their life, Right, I mean, when that happens, you don't receive that sacrificial love and go, I don't know if they really love me. No, it begins to clarify, like, these people actually love me. I mean, a little over a year ago, I called up a couple people to go help me pick up a piano and move it to my house. And that's like the one thing everyone's like, ah, I got something going on, right? And these guys helped me move a piano into my house on like a weekend night. And when they drove away, my first thought was like, I'm pretty sure those guys love me. Right? And it wasn't an arrogance thing. It was just like a man, because why else would you do that? Right? This is, this is true for us. And so, in the same way, if Jesus dies and sheds his blood and you meet him there at the cross and you go, man, my sin is so great, we simultaneously have this understanding God's love is greater than I could even dream. Even than I could dream. And this will powerfully change your life. I mean, even the, the Frenchman Victor Hugo once famously said, the greatest happiness in life is knowing that you were loved. That is the greatest happiness in life. So the first paradigm is seeing that our sin is greater than I realize. Two, it's God's love is greater than I realize. And number three, it's possible to have proximity to Jesus and completely miss him, to actually not know him. I mean, because this is a pretty somber scene, right? I mean, geez, what, what a scene. Um, this is the scene that makes Judas into one of those names, right? One of those names that if you're having a boy this year, Judas is not at the top of your list, right? If he is, I have some questions, right? I mean, have you ever, ever met a person named Judas? Sorry, if someone's named Judas in this room, I'm realizing right now, that's probably not a good look. But I mean, I don't know. I mean, I think there was a band named Judas Priest once, but I mean, they were no good, I don't think, so... Um, it's just one of those names, it's like anathema, you know, like, it's like Hitler, it's lumped into, like, Hitler and stuff like that, like, if you ever meet a kid named Hitler, watch out, right, I mean, you just, it's one of those names, I mean, I always feel bad for the other disciple who was named Judas, you know, who was amongst the twelve, it's like you almost can see him making it clear every time Judas called Iscariot, make sure it's, we know it's him, not me, right, it's a bad name, it's tarnished forever, why, because in the person of Judas, we encounter the worst case of betrayal the world has ever seen. See, to betray someone literally here in our passage means it's to get someone off your hands. It's to remove someone's power over you. This speaks to the essence of what sin even is, right? Judas rejected Jesus' authority, and so he seeks to rid himself of Jesus. And apparently Judas has fooled everybody. Because verse 23 shows us that the other 11 don't even know who Jesus is talking about. It's not like when Jesus says, one who has his hand on the table will betray me, which is, is a, it's a it's a language of fellowship. It's not like when he says that everyone's like, well, it's probably Judas. You know, he's a pretty shady guy. I mean, his name is Judas, right? They don't do that. No, Judas fooled everyone except Jesus. Except Jesus. We can't fool Jesus. And the scary thing is, is, it's possible, according to Scripture, that Judas even fooled himself. I mean, he did all the things that the other 11 did. He was sent out by Jesus into the world. He went on mission trips, you guys. He proclaimed the gospel of the kingdom. He cast out demons. He looked the part. He fooled everyone to the point that in a different account in Matthew's account, when Jesus announces that someone at the table will betray him, Judas even asks the question, Is it I, Rabbi? So even though we read about Judas betraying Jesus and we put him into a different category and we go, well, I'm not in that category, this is here for us to carefully realize that we are made of the same stuff apart from Christ. See, betrayal happens when we spend time with Jesus, we even spend time with his people, but all along the way we become disenchanted with the kingdom that he's ushering in, and in turn, we look at this world and we go, it has something better to offer me than Jesus. The fourth thing, the fourth paradigm, is that we can face suffering and evil with the confidence that God is working for our good. This is why we need to remember. It helps us remember this story specifically, that we then can face suffering and evil with the confidence that God is working for our good. And we know how this kind of works in society. I mean, there's been many things that have gone wrong and have failed. I don't know if you knew this, but um, the guy who invented Post-it notes uh, was trying to actually invent an adhesive. It was a complete failure. Worked out. He's doing well. I don't even know who this person is. Bubble wrap was a failed attempt at 3D wallpaper. That would have been cool, right? Play-Doh was originally supposed to be a cleaner for wallpaper, right? Wallpaper was pretty cool. right? But all these inventions, people had these Attempts to do something significant and it was a complete flop. It was a complete failure and yet we can see even in how those little ridiculous invention examples, right? That things can turn out for good. There could still be a purpose to them. And we know this in much greater ways, right? We know historically that things go wrong or even bad things can turn into good. I mean, you probably even have some personal stories in your life, I imagine. Right? You've experienced or seen Where through that moment or through that suffering of some kind, you saw how God was at work eventually. But all these stories that we have, right, they're just shadows, aren't they, of an ultimate story, the ultimate act of evil that God orchestrated for the greatest good. It's exactly what this passage is showing us. So I I just wonder, are some of you going through suffering right now, maybe even amazing suffering? And you're mad and you're saying, I just don't see how God can bring anything good out of this. Well, just imagine, right, how many people were sitting at the cross as Jesus, the most wonderful man they ever knew, was dying. And they look up and imagine them thinking, I don't see how God can bring anything good out of this. Things were going really well. I mean, who knows? Maybe they lost their faith because they couldn't work it into their little categories, their little minds, their little understanding, that God was doing something that was going to bring about the greatest good in this world. I mean, this is how the average person looks at suffering and thinks. We say, because I can't think of any good reason for this, there can't be any good reason for this. And that's logical. It's just not biblical. Right, The cross says the greatest failures and the greatest suffering could be a way for God to do something incredibly good, something that on the surface looks like utter disaster and failure, and it could end up being something that's turned into the greatest good this world's ever seen. I mean, even just this last week, I think on Thursday, we posted our interview on the Life Together podcast with Matt Mormantz. I don't know if you had a chance to listen to that, but there are missionaries in Slovenia and Mike was asking them about Ukraine and what's going on there because they're closer in proximity. They know some people and we all know the horrible suffering going on in Ukraine that we mourn and we pray against and we lament. And he's saying it's crazy how at, at evening these people are going down into the subways so they don't get killed and bombed at night. So people are going into the subways so that they can be safe, and as they're going in the subways, people are going into the subways to share the gospel, and they're seeing people come to faith in Jesus. I mean, talk about like fruit. I mean, if you're one of those Ukrainian people who is headed one direction with your life, and God brings about this horrible, unspeakable type of suffering, and yet through that act, you meet the living God, I mean, you see Joseph and how God uses him in Genesis to preserve his people, even when they're just a family and they're nothing more than that yet. And his brothers sell him off into slavery, right? He gets to, goes to prison and yet has the audacity to stand there one day when they're begging him, right, to help. And he can say, what you meant for evil, God intended for good. This is why Paul can say in Romans 8, God works all things together for our good, for those who are called according to his purpose. And verse 9 clarifies what that purpose is, it's to be conformed into the image of his son. This is why we can face evil or even harmful people or circumstances and say something to the effect, thank you for this, Jesus. I want to become more like you. Use this to conform me into your image, even the suffering. That's how this works. I mean, we had our elder retreat in January and we drove up to Mount Hood and we had this house on the back side of the mountain and we got up there at sunset. And when we got up there, we didn't realize when we booked this place, it had the most amazing view of Mount Hood. It was like pink sunset. It was awesome. We're like, wow. And then we all kind of commented to each other, could you imagine if we had driven up here in the pitch black dark and we'd have gone to bed at night? We'd, we wouldn't even know. We'd have no idea. We'd wake up the next morning just completely surprised. Oh my gosh, the mountain's right there. Look at that view. And that's exactly what our suffering feels like. It's a dark night. We can't see what's actually there. But one day when you sit at the table with Jesus in the new heavens and the new earth, our faith will be made sight and there's things that we will see that we didn't see before. So this communion meal that Jesus is instituting on this night, it helps with all these paradigms as we remember what Jesus' death achieved. And so here we are, right a church that celebrates this meal every single week. We end this sermon. We have a time for reflection. We have a time um, to consider this gospel message, to take these elements and to reflect and remember, well, why do we do that? well, it accomplishes many things in our life. What we're doing when we do that is we're once again bringing the cross to the center of our life. Why would we do that? Well, look at verse 19. What does he say? He took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. Do you notice what Jesus is saying there? He's saying, when you think of me, I want you to think of me like this. When you think of me, I want you to remember the cross. Like You know, don't, don't miss the miracles, right? Don't miss the teaching. But when you think of me, this is how I want you to remember me. Just when you take the cross into the center of your life, do you see what that would do to you? I mean, the word remember literally means it is your job to continually take what I did for you on the cross and put it at the center of your consciousness. That's what you're doing when you remember. Because if we fail to remember, we forget. We begin to forget. So this week, like all the other weeks, we're going to take communion. But as we take this meal in our time of response now, we are taking in the cross and remembering that Jesus' death was not a tragic accident, but he was the Lamb of God prepared to die. When we take in the cross, we remember that Jesus' death achieved a new, unbreakable covenant relationship with God. He's not going to divorce you. When you take in the cross and remember your sin is greater than you could realize When you take in the cross, we're remembering that we are loved more than we could even dream. When we take into the cross, into the center of our consciousness, we're remembering soberingly that close proximity to Jesus isn't enough. We must stay with him, abide in him. When we take in the cross and remember, we remember that in the face of suffering and evil, God is at work bringing about the greatest good. Whom we take in the cross and remember, we remember that the day is coming when Jesus will stop fasting and we will feast. It's gonna be a great day. It's like as you felt the warmth of forty-five degrees on your skin this week, you remembered summer's coming. Guys, tonight, as you take this meal, it's an appetizer. We go, oh, yeah, that feast is coming. Why? Because Jesus died. That's why he died. Let's all stand to our feet and go into our time of response. Lord Jesus, would you put your glory on display before our eyes tonight as we behold the cross? May you bring it to bear on every nook and cranny of our lives. Would you transform us? Would you conform us into your image? May we never forget what you've done.